All right. Ready to go? Yep, let's do it. One, two, three. Welcome to Required Reading. This time, this week, this episode, we are finishing up our, well, book exchange. Yeah, Christmas. Uh, from Christmas. Yeah. yeah. Uh, with my selection, of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter S. Thompson. Uh, I mean, I guess I'll say why I picked it. Yes, good. Let's get uh, to that. Yeah, I mean, Mike and I teach a class on the American experiment, uh, and nothing is more experimental, <laughs> nothing, uh, than the search. In many ways, yeah. <laughs> right. Than the search for the dark heart of the American dream, as he keeps putting it in this book. Um, Hunter S. Thompson, of course, is a doctor in journalism, as he'll never let you forget, uh, for specifically gonzo journalism and the literature style, what we call new journalism. Um, of course, I'm your host, Nick Hoffman. On panel, we have. And I'm Mike Burns. And uh, yeah, so Mike, when was the last time you read this? So I was thinking when you gave it to me, I, I was pleasantly surprised. Um, and it's a good book. And I was trying to remember when I first encountered it. And I think it was the, the summer of my junior, after my junior year in high school. Um, and it's one of those books. It's like a handshake book. Like somebody gives it to you. Sure. It's not a teacher is going to refer you to this. And so I one of my friends um, gave it to me. And so, yeah, I read it in... Um, yeah, I must have been 17, mm -hmm. um, and then sort of followed Hunter S. Thompson after that a little bit, because um, he was everywhere, of course. And then once you sort of open your your eyes to that underground lit, and um, and I remember loving it, just reading through it and just you know thinking, oh, this is amazing, this is crazy, um, unlike anything you'd, you'd ever read before. So um, that was my first encounter with it. How about you? Uh, Probably the same. I, I picked up, I believe, this first, and, you know, in the late 90s, Trey Gilliam came out with his version with Johnny Depp and Benicio Del Toro and Tobey Maguire and all that stuff. And so I was aware of the movie um, and read the book, and the book is uh, insane. And then have gone through most of his stuff and since. Uh, Fear and Loathing on Campaign Trail 72, Hell's Angels, um, and he died... Uh, I believe in the end of 2005. Like 2005, yeah. yeah. And after that have come out like a series of books that have everything from his letters to his short stories to his, you know, articles for Rolling Stone and, you know, um, Sporting Press and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I remember very early on in a college also reading his kind of first real essay that cut on, which is his analysis of the Kentucky Derby, mm -hmm. um, which is just out of control. It's wild. Yeah, I read that last night again. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, there's something so joyous. Like, I, I don't know. Like, There's something so earnest about what he is, and when he's talking about looking at these people as though they're monsters, you really believe that they are monsters. And in some ways, it's even more descriptive than just describing the women in the large hats drinking you know, mint juleps and whatever. Right. And so I guess, I mean, I'm curious how many people know this book I, mean, I don't what, what's your what's your take on that like if you're drawn to literature um you certainly would have heard of him perhaps but he you know sort of is outside the canon but over time has, has been incorporated i would say yeah uh, what's your sense of it and it's interesting too like i went to the library um to check out some other books his collection of letters proud highway which i highly recommend um and it's interesting that fear and loathing as outrageous as it is and um, but it's in the nonfiction section, and I think, is it fiction? Is it real? Because some of the things he describes are so fantastic, um, largely because he's, you know, 
influenced by many substances of various kinds as he's telling the story. But is it is it real? Is it nonfiction? So here we are in that line again of what's real and what's not real. Um, how do you tell a true story? Can be fiction be more true than than nonfiction? Um, yeah, but just so to back to my question, what do you think is the the overall perception of Hunter S. Thompson? Uh, I mean, honestly, I think if you're a journalist, you've read it because there's just something about the way he embeds himself in this story that is truly remarkable. Like, and I mean, we'll get to it. Essentially, he's called out by the sporting press in New York to cover at first a race called the Mid 400, which is a you know a, a dirt, dirt bike, bike race. race. Yeah. Um, which immediately becomes absurd, and that's kind of the metaphor that he uses for the entire press. These men have been drinking all night, a mixture of coffee and gambling and liquor, and then this race starts, and by the time the last round of riders have actually started this, you know, it's a Grand Prix, it's like 400 miles, you can't even see the people taking off the starting line. Um, so it's absurd to begin with. Right, it, it, I mean, <laughs> it, it's similar to his Kentucky Derby story. He goes to co- cover the Derby, and the Derby is literally like two paragraphs in the story. It's everything around it. Uh, and the same thing from this. He's covering the ostensibly the Mint uh, 400 race, and there's really very, very little about the race itself. And it's just the the, the drama and the drugs and the, the getting there, the journey. Well, and uh, we'll mention it, but it's funny how much politics hasn't changed. But, like, you have these people out in the middle of the desert in, like, the back of this pickup truck with shotguns and Confederate flags looking for people. Right. And it just wants us, oh, no, we're good Americans just like you. <laughs> and he salutes them as they drive off into the dust. Yeah, literally across the street from the start of the race is a gun club, like, shooting guns off. So, um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. But it, it, it touches on so many things. So I want to talk about that as far as what the American dream is. Do we want to, you know, I don't think we can – possibly capture his writing style we can read some quotes i hope we will but yeah of course um that think that's what's so unique is his voice and how he uh paces things and um just the tempo of his writing well and i mean first of all 100 percent. there have been few writers that we've done other than possibly poets who write in a way that make you talk the way they talk yeah his the words that come out of his like typewriter or whatever sound exactly like you imagine him speaking because he writes in a different style for everyone. His attorney, who's crazy, also what's um, Acosta was his real name, but you know they just call him his attorney throughout most of this. Yeah. Uh, talks in a completely different way, and it's written in a completely different way. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how how this was put together, but you definitely feel the intensity as it goes. Well, through. it's funny you mentioned the 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 way he talks because he was very as far as I've been reading about um, Thompson's writing style. So a lot of this is based on audio tape that he had. Like he had a tape recorder, which he mentions in the book, and some of it he transcribed directly. Um, and he talks about his attorney Acosta was a little bit mad when he finally saw the transcripts. Like those are my words. You're taking my words, and your name is on the cover. Right. Um, which repeats. Um, Thompson did that a couple times, and people got upset about him, um, uh, particularly with his Hell's Angels story. Um, the Hell's Angels beat the crap out of him because yeah. they said, this is our story. We want our share of the, the money. Yeah. Um, but he apparently would record, um, or he would he would type or have someone else read back what he'd written. So he was very auditory in that way, or almost musical. And there's definitely a rhythm to it. And it's hard not to, if you've seen interviews with him before, it's hard not to hear that sort of staccato, sort of clenched jaw with his cigarette holder 
um, as he's reading these. Um, and so, yeah, he's, he's literally got a unique voice both on the page and then in your ear as, you, as you're reading it. But I think that goes back to he was he was typing it out and then playing it back and then typing it out and playing it back, and that was his, his editing process. And, I mean, you could just... You say that, and for those of you who have not read it, you, you really should stop and find this book and read it. But as he does different drugs, the writing style also changes because that's what he's doing. And, again... He, he describes the trunk of his car as a narcotics lab, and he goes through the various degrees of what's in there. Um, and, you know, I, as promised, there's going to be a kid who's going to read for us, and it's going to, you know, be a little bit all over the place because it has to be, but I'll, I'll, I'll read a quote because we're here. The sporting editors had also given me $300 in cash, most of which had already been spent on extremely dangerous drugs. The trunk of the car looked like a mobile narcotics lab, with two bags of grass, 75 pellets of mescaline, five sheets of high-powered blotter acid, a salt shaker full of cocaine, a whole galaxy of uppers, downers, screamers, laughers, also a quart of tequila, a quart of rum, a case of Budweiser, and a pint of raw either, and a two dozen amyls. And then he gets into, either's the most dangerous of all of them, man, I could go for some ether. <laughs> Right. That, that's where we are. That's literally where we are. And when you first read that, or I first read that, I was like, what, you can write about this? And, and so, yeah, as a probably naive 17-year-old, you're shocked that people are doing this, bragging about this, being so open about it. Well, um, and, and, that's, and that's, I think, his handle, right? Because he's all about this gonzo journalism that he's going to embed himself in the story. Like you said, the Hell's Angels thing. If you haven't read Hell's Angels, that's also incredibly intense. That's like 67 he's writing that as a young man. He embedded himself with – I've never read it. I've just read of it. But he embeds himself with the angels for a year. Yeah. And then is journaling their stories. and Comes out with an incredible book. Right. Uh, like you said, they beat the crap out of him. They beat the crap out of him in the book. Sure. And – um if you've read, I think it's Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test by Tom Wolfe, there's a scene in there that he lifts directly from Thompson. Um, oh, really? uh, this, like, drug orgy thing that happens. Great book. <laughs> yeah, that's another one. All right. Uh, yeah, Tom Wolfe is also, uh, I guess, in the same kind of field, the uh, the idea of new journalism, embed yourself in the story. Right, and, and Wolfe um, was, I think, the first person to put the gonzo journalism in print in, like, in, in his writing or his essay of new journalism. He, he name-checks... He's the only person – and Thompson's very proud about this, and I was reading some of his letters and interviews – that he's the only person mentioned twice in that book about new journalism. Um, and so he's taking this idea of the reporter inserting themselves in the story as they're telling it to, to hell with objectivity. Um, right. And so, yeah, there's Tom Wolfe, Hunter Thompson um, – Joan Didion. Joan should Didion, probably do definitely. some Joan Didion. Yeah, that'd yeah. be good to do. R.I.P. This past year. Right, I know. Yeah, very recently. We, but we, very, could you be more opposite Joan Didion and Hunter Thompson? I don't know. As far as probably not. <laughs> I mean, she's, she's very restrained and reserved, and he is Gonzo, as he says. Well, um, and uh, we, we have been dancing around this for a long time. Uh, but if you don't know what this is, just read the first chapter or watch the first five minutes, ten minutes of the movie. They do a really good job of getting this. But, like, you're introduced to the character Raul Duke, who's just Hunter S. Thompson, vaguely in disguise. Um, and I think they literally just change his name. They allude to it later because he's committed fraud at, like, six hotels by this point. And so he's just running right. running wild. Uh, but, like, we were, at the, we were somewhere near Barstow at the edge of the desert where the drugs began to take hold. Yeah, that's the famous first line. Let's and just read it, yeah. you don't go back from that. Like... <laughs> 
like you said, in the first page, uh, you know exactly what this book is. Yeah. We were somewhere around Bartow on the edge of the desert when the drugs began to take hold. I remember saying something like, I feel a bit lightheaded. Maybe you should drive. And then that's it. That's it. But it's interesting. The book is bookended, and we'll get to that at the end. And at the end, um, you know, he um, is in the airport, and then he's taking these poppers. Um, and so it sort of begins in drugs and ends in drugs. And how that relates to the American dream, we can dissect that, or I'm sure many other people have tried. Um, well, I mean... L- but it's soaked in drugs. It soaks in drugs. It's soaked in, like, bad alcohol right. and just... This overwhelming sense of we're doing it because we can, and I think that's that's part of the dream. So let's let's get into what Hunter S. Thompson's dream really is. Um, I think he, the way he's describing it is, he's convinced the sporting press to, um, and he's very vague on a lot of the names throughout most of this on purpose, obviously, uh, but they've given him money up front. Uh, to cover this race in the middle of the desert. And he's down for it because he sees the dream as the ability to do insane things because it's what you want to do. And the openness of the desert, the ability to go from uh, incredibly rich to incredibly poor, incredibly poor to incredibly rich in Vegas all at once to him is kind of the thesis, right? That's the thesis of what he's doing. Yeah, page two... um... He's sitting at the pool, and then they don't know what's going on. And he says, um, Jesus, just one hour ago, we were sitting over there in that stinking baguino, stone broke and paralyzed for the weekend, when a call comes through from some total stranger in New York telling me to go to Las Vegas and expenses be damned. And then he sends me over to some office in Beverly Hills where another total stranger gives me $300 raw cash for no reason at all. I tell you, man, this is the American dream in action. We'd be fools not to ride this strange to- torpedo all the way out to the end. It's sort of just this, this moment of fortune, and they're just going to go for it, and they're going to go for it in a big, outrageous way. Well, and again, uh, his um, his lawyers, uh, he calls him Samoan throughout. I don't know if that's true or not. No, he, was, he was Mexican originally, yeah, and he was a real attorney. And, and again, it got a little fractious between the two of them after the book was published, but um, Thompson says he turned him into Samoan. So not to out him. Right. So here's this attorney that's doing all these drugs and and doing all this. And, you know, I don't know if uh, Acosta actually bought that or not, but that's the story Hunter tells. But, I mean, like, the quote, and I forget if this is before that or after that, but he goes, like, you just have no faith in the white man's decency. We we were stone broke, and now, just based on a smile, they've given me this car, and they've given me 300 bucks. Let's get a bunch of drugs. Right. And... That's the end of the scene. And and if you are the button-down conservative Nixon type in the 60s, this has to be everything you're afraid of, which he addresses when Mm -hmm. we get to the wave speech, which is kind of the thing that we always talk about in class, this idea that they're riding a crest of beautiful wave. We'll get there. Um, But what's almost interesting is if this is the dream that he has, the turn in the second act of the narcotics conference is – brilliant because in this place where everyone is getting drunk all the time and there's prostitution and there's gambling and it's this pit of like incredible joy and incredible despair and then all of a sudden all the cops in america are coming to talk about how we can take away their fun it's a perfect turn in the book right and the fact that it's the lawyer who signs them up is perfect the 
everything. The fact that they have to switch hotels in the middle of the night because at one point he opens like somehow we've managed to spend between thirty two and twenty eight and thirty two dollars an hour on room service for the last forty eight consecutive hours and we have no way to pay for it. Right. Um, yeah, just incredible. And so those are all true. St- and again, this is in nonfiction, so a lot of it's true, I think, but a lot of it obviously I think has been jacked up a little bit. Sure. Um, but yeah, so he goes to cover the Mint Four Hundred and. Uh, in the book, uh, they run up this outrageous bill. They get in all sorts of trouble, and they're fleeing uh, Vegas. Uh, the attorney flies out, and Hunter's by himself. He's starting to pa- panic. He's got this trunk full of marijuana and all these drugs. Uh, he gets pulled over by this cop that's, you know, sort of, and he's got the beer in his hand. Um, and then he, it's a loose situation, and then the cop is sort of waiting for him on the other edge of town, like daring him to like go back to California when yeah. he said like just go down the street and sleep it off. Um, and so he ends up turning around and going back to Vegas. And then that's part two. And so yeah. the first part is the race. Second part is, is the um, national uh, district attorneys or um, deputies uh, convention. And we should mention, which are oh, true um, yeah. uh, reading about it. This happened. He said um, one was in June. The other was in like August. So they, there were true events that happened a couple months apart. Uh, in Thompson's life, but in the novel or in the book, he makes it seem as if it's a streamless, you know, eight or ten days in Vegas. Yeah, uh, eight or ten days where we see him eat one hamburger and otherwise nothing but citrus fruit so that <laughs> right. he doesn't get scurvy because exactly. of all the drugs he's taking. Right. Um, but to your point, too, he covers the race for all of, like, ten pages. <laughs> if that, yeah. Because most it's, of it's at the bar, just the people he's talking to. Yeah. And Because it's absurd. Like, there's what he calls his Portuguese photographer, uh, who's out there in the back of, like, a Ford Bronco trying to take pictures in the dust uh, in what Thompson calls a fruitless effort to figure out what filter and lens can see through the dust, which, perfect. I perfect. should have looked it up, but this was a real story for Sports Illustrated, and all he got out of it was a caption for a photo. That's all they ever used for this. Um, so I'm sure it's out there somewhere. Someone wants to look it up. Um, but it's just an interesting peek at the um, the journalism there or the the business prospect of that. My favorite parts of the, this book, just in general, is when the real world comes crashing down. Because, like, in Alice in Wonderland, there is no reality, right? But this, I mean, again, on page five, they pick up a kid who's never been in a convertible before. They pick up right. a hitchhiker, which is very 60s. Uh, my hitchhiker saw the hitch. Uh, my attorney saw the hitchhiker long before I did. Let's get this boy a lift, he said. Before I could mount any argument, he is stopping at this poor kid. This oaky kid was running up to the car with a big grin on his face. Hot damn! I never rode in a convertible before. Is that right? I said. Well, I guess you're about ready. The kid nodded eagerly, and we roared off. We're your friends, said my attorney. We're not like the others. That's it. <laughs> yeah. And as you're saying that, I'm thinking like that's exactly what Thompson is doing for us as the reader. Mm-hmm. Like. These are scary, quasi-dangerous people, and now we're stuck with them. <laughs> we're well, on for the ride. And it's so loud in the car, the kid can't hear them in the back seat. And it, literally, he screams, no more of that talk, or I'll put the leeches on you. And the kid grins and seemed to understand. <laughs> and then eventually, the kid freaks out and jumps out of the car. Which um, you would! Of course, <laughs> my God. You 100% would! Um, he's also depicted as a kid wearing a Mickey Mouse shirt, which is great. Um, and we should also mention, in here... Uh, Ralph, the great Ralph Steadman illustrates right. this with some of the most nonsense, insane drawings you've ever seen. Uh, Mickey Mouse with swastikas on his belly, you know, uh, and the, the walls melting. Yeah, the ink blot drawings and just um, he 
visually captures sort of the, I guess, the idea of fear and loathing itself. Yeah. Um, which was interesting. I, again, I was doing research, and then I found this quote last night. And let me find it here. Um, and so this uh, this is from Hunter's journals in 1963, uh, and he's writing uh, on the day that Kennedy had just been assassinated. He said, "There is no human being within 500 miles to whom I can communicate anything, much less the fear and loathing that is in me after today's murder." Um, and so I think that uh, it's interesting that the title goes way back in his journaling um, and has its origin in, in Kennedy's assassination. Well, and it's so funny, too, because we say fear and loathing in Las Vegas without thinking about it. That is such a great way to encapsulate what he sees as the American dream as well. Like, Because what is it if not going further than you thought you could go? And there is that fear built into it. And the disgust that comes after, um, which we get into a lot in the Vegas scenes, but fear and loathing is such a great, powerful idea. Right, and also obviously the fear associated with the drugs, the paranoia that the drugs are, are causing a lot of the drama here. Um, but also, yeah, the fear of what is this society that allows this to happen, that allows a guy like this to exist, or balance with the freedom that allows him to exist and do all this stuff, so... Um, yeah, it touches on a lot of nerves of the American dream, good and bad. Um, and I don't know if we want to go there yet, but in the second part, they, the story about the, you know, the law, the police officers' convention is sort of like going off the rails, and they're trying to salvage it some way, so they turn it into the American dream, and they're literally just walking around asking people where the American dream is. It's like so, some people literally freak out. falls apart at this point. Right, which is a metaphor in itself, perhaps. Yeah, and then they finally steer him to some place out in the desert that used to be an old club, and then it was at the old psychiatrist club. Um, let me see if I have the quote here. Yeah, and so they eventually find it. They locate the ground where this this American dream was, or they think it is, and they're they're looking for it. Uh, and they say it was the old psychiatrist club, a huge slab of cracked, scorched concrete in a vacant lot full of tall weeds. The owner of a gas station across the road said the place had burned down three years ago. Perfect. Boom. I mean, right there. So yeah. what is that as far as the American dream goes? And, I mean, to that end, we can just talk about who Thompson is. Like, he's lucky. He he survives all of this, and he survives this way till 2005 where he ends his own life. He right. had become, you know, a, a sheriff at one point in Colorado. He tried. Yeah, he ran yeah. for sheriff in the freak party ticket. <laughs> Um, with the the symbol of Gonzo journalism with his a fist with two thumbs. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, the guy uh, Oscar Zeta Acosta, the guy who plays Dr. Gonzo, or Dr. Gonzo is based on the attorney, dies in 1974 under mysterious circumstances. Mm -hmm. Like he, you know, he talks. The last thing we have is him talking to his son, who says he's about to board a boat of white snow. And then he's never seen again. Like, right. Like just three years after the book comes in out. In Mexico, I in think. In Mexico, right? right. Yeah. So, um, and again, like how close was that to Thompson? Uh, the, right before this, he gets like beaten nearly to death by the Hell's Angels. So uh, we, I guess we see this all here. Like it's just. And now I was reading too, and you mentioned Acosta, that he, um, Thompson was working on a piece uh, about a um, Chicano rights activist who had been murdered in L.A. And like it was. Um, not, well, yeah, it was an accidental murder, but it, uh, it was a charge of racism that the LAPD police, I think, threw a smoke grenade in a bar, and then it blew up in a wrong way and killed this guy. Yeah. And they thought they were targeting him, and so he's writing this very heavy piece 
when he gets this assignment. So this uh, trip to L- uh, Las Vegas is sort of like a, a purging, a, a complete shift to get his mind off off the heavy piece um, that he did. But I'm curious about just the myth of Thompson and how he become because there's such excessive drug use in this, and then his own myth that he sets up in um, Woody Creek, Colorado, where he yeah. lives, and like people are going out there and drinking, doing acid, shooting guns all night, and he was legendary for all these things um, to the point where I don't know if it affected his writing. I read about he he said it was hard to separate what people expected him to be versus what he was. Well, and it's bigger than life. You know, it reminds me, we just talked about Jesse James, kind of, and that's kind of what it yeah, seems to be. Yeah, we love the outlaw, right? I mean, and you just realize that eventually he starts going overseas to do this kind of stuff, but, like, he could not, after Fear and Loathing is huge, he could not just do this again. Everyone knows the legend, and people would track him down. No, he talks about, uh, in one uh, interview I read, he is following so he has another great book fear and loathing on the campaign trail where mm-hmm. he's following um nixon around and then he tries to do a similar thing with jimmy carter in 1980 and he says i would go to press conferences uh or briefings and i would get more questions or out question or requests for autographs than jimmy carter would and so that's when he knew like he couldn't be the reporter that he used to be or wanted to be and there's a great documentary which i didn't know existed until um just yesterday it's called fear and loathing in gonzo land and it's by this British photographer and, and filmmaker who goes, takes him and Stedman uh, in 78. So this is like six years after the book comes out. Um, and they drive to, they fly into Las Vegas and then they drive from Las Vegas to Hollywood and back. And Thompson is so uncomfortable in Hollywood. Like he's literally hiding behind cars because people are coming up to him and he's like, man, I can't do this. This is, yeah. this is, this isn't right. Let's stop the cameras. Um, and because he has become the show and versus, trying to do the reporting or, or the writing that he did. So it's interesting. Well, and that's why what's interesting later is his political writing from a distance. Like he is terrified is the wrong way to put it, but like reading fear and loathing on the campaign trail, he's talking about Nixon turning into a monster. Like, and you guys really, if you haven't read it, like it's, it's a remarkable reveal of what is a very bizarre election. Like this is the Watergate election. And he just happens to be embedded, I believe for Rolling Stone at the time, uh, with the Nixon campaign, eventually getting a car ride with Nixon, where all Nixon's like, we won't talk politics, all we're going to talk about is college football. And because Nixon loved college football, and no one wanted to talk college football with him. Yeah, they they go around asking the press pool, like, Nixon, you can have a, a ride with Nixon, but you can't ask any questions, he just wants to talk football. And no one wants to get in the car with Nixon, and Hunter, and they, Hunter volunteers, and then they go around again, and he's literally the only reporter in the press pool that that will bit get in the car. And he says they had a nice, you know, conversation. A conversation. Enthusiastic football fan and knowledgeable. And they talked for three hours. And it's so funny because, and again, like you have to understand Thompson, it's weird, but he is also brilliant. Like he knows everything. He's read everything. He refers to Horatio Alger and all this stuff. And, but when he's referring to Nixon here, it's like he's turned into Dante Alighieri and he's entering a car bound for hell and they're talking football. Right. It's so and perfect. It being a lovely experience. And so it's weird. <laughs> he can sort of, you know, split himself that way. Um, yeah. And it's also just, again, the, I, I keep going back to the drugs because they're so soaked in this. And then there was a famous interview that E. Jean Carroll has been in the news recently, if you know, mm-hmm. um, where she goes out to the ranch and interviews Carroll, <clears throat> interviews Thompson and jots down his work schedule. And I'll just read it. Please. 
3 p.m. rise. 3.05, Chivas Regal with the morning papers. Dunhills. 3.45, cocaine. 3.50, another glass of Chivas. Dunhill. 4.05, first cup of coffee. Dunhill. 4.15, cocaine. 4.16, orange juice. Dunhill. 4.30, cocaine. 4.54, cocaine. 5.05, cocaine. 5.11, coffee. Dunhills. 5.30, more ice in the Chivas. 5.45, cocaine, etc., etc. 6 o'clock, grass to take the edge off the day. 7.05, Woody Creek Tavern for lunch. Heineken, two margaritas, coleslaw, taco salad, double order of fried onion rings, carrot cake, ice cream, a bean fritter, Dunhills, another Heineken, cocaine, and for the ride home, a snow cone, um, which is poured over three jiggers of shivas. 9 o'clock, starts snorting cocaine seriously. 10 o'clock, drops acid. 11 o'clock, chartreuse, cocaine, grass. 11.30, cocaine, etc., etc. Midnight, Hunter Thompson is ready to write. 12.05 to 6 a.m., chartreuse, cocaine, grass, shivas, coffee, Heineken, clove cigarettes, grapefruit, Dunhill, orange juice, gin, continuous pornographic movies. 6 o'clock, in the hot tub, dove bars, fettuccine Alfredo. 8 o'clock, halcyon, 8.20, sleep. (laughs) Calcium gets me. As though he then takes a Centrum Silver and just like... So, so there's this legend, but how much of this is self-made? Is that the American dream right there? He like he has this outlaw persona. How much of that was performative for her while she's there? Can you separate the two? I don't know. It's interesting. Well, I mean, and again, to wit, he's supposed to cover a race, but you don't hire this man for Sports Illustrated to just give you the stats and who wins. No. And so he literally has a line. But what was the story? No one had bothered to say. So we would have to drum it up on our own. Free Enterprise, the American dream. Horatio Alger gone mad on drugs in Las Vegas. Do it now. Pure gonzo journalism. And again, Acosta and him are drinking... Like liquor, everything comes with a shot of mezcal, right? right? And then they're like, well, what we got to do is buy a giant motorcycle and race it. And he's giving the stats of this motorcycle. And then eventually later, they're actually at the dune race. And he goes, this would be as insane as trying to drive a Cadillac in a dune buggy race. And then they say, let's enter. And they try to enter the race. And they can't get it in. (laughs) At which point, Acosta shows up shirtless with a knife and saying, they're out to get me. And we're just like, he's gone mad. It's, it's it's outrageous. But, you know, we're laughing about it, but I wonder, like, it's such – I guess it's his skill as a storyteller, but I, I think of something like train spotting. Or sure. Where it's like, again, it's soaked in drug use, and then you just feel like these people are pathetic, uh, and you feel sad for their addictions. And then here, you don't, right? No. Why not? I mean, why are we identifying with him? I think if it's, we met this guy on the road or he right. was in the car ahead of us. Oh, my God, right? No, and, and that's that's the trick he plays on you. But essentially, we're all over the place, but so is the book, so you're fine. But like, <laughs> When are we not all over the place? Fair. But <laughs> I, I, if people are listening to this to write an essay, you guys are screwed to no, begin with. you're done. Um, but like, we're introduced to him in this car, and everything's out of control. And they stop on the side of the road, and he, they essentially – we have a minor overdose. The the lawyer starts like seizing, mm-hmm. and so they give them some ammos, and then uh, they take a bunch of acid, and they're like, "Well, now we have 30 minutes before we go crazy, and LA or Las Vegas is on right. the horizon. Let's we better make it." Yeah. <laughs> so they they fly down the street, and they get to the hotel. And to your point, why do we sympathize with this guy? He's literally sweating, practicing a speech about how he's going to maintain. Give him your name. 
uh, you're just checking into the hotel. Yeah, right? you name your registration and your press affiliation or whatever it is. And he's holding his typewriter, he's holding his tape recorder, sweating like crazy, and the woman at the register is turning into a moray eel. Um, the room's not ready, so they're drinking crazy, and he starts saying, oh my god, the blood is everywhere. <laughs> like, he's losing his mind. Right. Um, but, like... But we're with him. We're right? with him. We're 100% with him. It's... <sighs> And then it goes, we, we kind of get it back around when they're going to Circus Circus. But he goes, the main advantage of Ether is that it makes you behave like the village drunkard in some early Irish novel. Total loss of basic motor skills, blurred vision, no balance, numb tongue, severance of all connection between the mind and the brain and the body. Which is interesting, because the brain continues to function more or less normally. You can actually watch yourself in this terrible state. But he says, and this is a perfect drum for Vegas, because they love a drunk, because a drunk is someone you can take advantage of. Right. And he's right. And they immediately push him in to uh, Circus Circus, and it's the nightmare that is Alice in Wonderland or whatever. It's yeah, crazy. I think it's interesting that Circus Circus is where the book sort of bookends. There's a scene here, and then when they come back to it at the end as as the epitome of the American dream. Because apparently the, the casino owner, this is in Thompson's telling, I don't know how accurate it is, that one wanted to run away and join the circus as a kid, but didn't, and so this is his manifestation of it. Right. Um, is Circus th- Circus still a casino there? I don't there? think so. I, I think they burned that place I know it down. it was in the – I went there with my family. We went out to Grand Canyon and all that, and we spent a night in Vegas, and then we went to Circus Circus um, because there was like a casino down on the floor, and then my brother and I were you know, 14 or so, and so we were playing video games. We were happy to play video games on the next level. But yeah, there were circus acts going on, but it's so – P.T. Barnum, right? That's the American uh, suckers born every minute kind of thing. Totally. Um, oh, well, shut my mouth. Uh, it was sold to MGM in 2005, uh, and it was closed for two twice since then, but it was for renovations. It is still open. Uh, so, yeah, and he has go. this great quote. This is from page 46. Circus Circus is what the whole hep world would be doing Saturday night if the Nazis had won the war. Uh, the madness goes on and on. Customers are being hustled at every conceivable kind of bizarre shuck. Um, so yeah, the point that they love a drunk and just like, this is America and what can you rip off somebody? So what can you promise to sell them or keep them entertained with bread and circuses literally here? And, uh, they described how the interior rotates and how it's like oh, yeah, three that, stories right. and I it's insane. That. It did rotate, rotate around. There's like an acrobat and, you know, um, yeah, it's interesting. And then later on, um, there's at the end. Um, towards the end, he says, now this owner, he's, he's back, he meets the guy. Now the owner has his own circus and a, and a license to steal, too. And that's what a casino is, essentially, right. right? Yeah, so. And, I mean, and he's, like, at one point talking about buying the chimp from them. And right. Like, and, I mean, again, at this point, literally, uh, and who knows how true this is or how true it's, or, or whatever, but the, the text literally says, uh, editor's note. At this point, it becomes so garbled. The writing is so. We've just started transcribing the tape, and at certain points, just like we can't understand what the tape is even saying. Uh, so we're just doing our best here, and that's one of the scenes. Uh, an argument at a bar over buying the chimp from Circus Circus. <laughs> just like, all right, guys. And I think that's what Thompson is so good at, or so good at selling, is just this sort of stream of consciousness. Um, feeling i guess of a drug trip or something but there's he writes about this too there's no way you can write when you're on drugs like this but he's as a way of sort of capturing that experience and then coming back and recreating it for the for the reader but Um, like even like that uh that that um 
timeline of the day you read, that schedule today you read, mm -hmm. it's as though, you know, I mean, the line uh, at the beginning of the book is uh, when you enter a serious drug collection, it's more about the collecting than the actual taking of the drugs. Of course, by the end, they've taken all the drugs. Right. But it seems like there's almost a headspace he, he can tell, like, ah, now it's time to write. And he's going to write for six straight hours while drinking constantly. Uh, and then go. And we get that in here. Like when he gives the wave speech and it's some of the best writing I you read. Like it's it's truly phenomenal when you uh, apparently if you asked him what his best writing was, he always quotes the wave speech. It's it's great. But it's after he's locked the attorney in the bathroom. He's had a freak out trip. They've broken all the lights and the mirrors in the room and replaced it with a string of lights from the Safeway or whatever. Um and it's as though he has this moment of clarity, you know, the classic, you know, uh, writer's moment of clarity and puts out this incredible thing, uh, which just, again, in a world that's falling apart around him. Do you want to read that? Uh, I mean, yeah, I always read that. I had it flagged. Let's see. Uh, so it goes on for a bit, but I can read the whole thing. Um Strange memories on this nervous night in Las Vegas. Five years later, six, it seems like a lifetime, or at least a main era. The kind of peak that never comes again. San Francisco in the middle 60s was a very special time and place to be a part of. Maybe it meant something, maybe not. Not in the long run. But no explanation, no mix of words or music or memories can touch the sense of knowing that w you were alive and there in that corner of time in the world, whatever it meant. History is hard to know because of all the hired bullshit. But even without being sure of history... It seems entirely reasonable to think that every now and again that the energy of a whole generation comes to a head in a long, fine flash for reasons that nobody really understands at the time, which never explain in retrospect what actually happened. My central memory of that time seems to hang on maybe four or five or forty nights or very early mornings when I left the Fillmore half crazy and instead of going home, aimed the big 650 lightning across the Bay Bridge at 100 miles an hour, wearing L.L. Bean shorts and a Butte Shepherder's jacket, booming through Treasure Island Tunnel at lights of Oakland and Berkeley and Richmond, not quite sure which turn off to take when I got to the other, always stalling at the toll gate, too twisted to find neutral and fumbling for loose change. But absolutely certain that no matter which way I went, I would come to a place where people were just as high and wild as I was. No doubt about that. There's madness in every direction, at any hour. If not across the bay, then the Golden Gate, or down 101 to Los Altos or La Honda, you could strike, you could spark, strike sparks anywhere. God, I wish I could read. There were a fantastic universal sense of whatever we were doing was right, and that we were winning. And that, I think, was the handle. That sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil. Not in any mean or military sense. We didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. There was no point in fighting on our side or theirs. We had all the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. So now, less than five years later, you can go on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west. And with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see that high water mark, that place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. It's incredible, right? No, it's good. And the pacing, and so he's sort of like doing his own voiceover of the account there because he flashes back to San Francisco. But to the point, like this is all anticlimactic, right? It's become, I don't know, I'm being too cynical, but indulgent, like the selfishness of the drug taking or the pleasure seeking or why they're taking drugs. He has a great little line later that um, 
No one does expansive, you know, LSD explorations anymore. It's all downers after Nixon comes into power. Yeah. Um, and just sort of how the the sort of utopian dream of the 60s has died. That was a high watermark, and then we're on the do- decline from there. I don't know. Well, and, like, uh, he even makes reference at one very weird moment that his neighbor used to be, like, Timothy Leary or something. Like, they, he doesn't say the, doc- the good doctor's name, but, like, there's this assumption that, like, there were drugs just available, and it, and again, like they said, that there was nothing evil about it. What we were doing, we thought we were doing the right thing, and it just now everything's falling back apart. And I mean, he's writing in '71, or the book comes out in '71, so he's probably writing in '69, '70. Yeah, the article. There was two articles. It was split in Rolling Stone, and then they they put it in a book form. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Apparently, he hated Timothy Leary. I'm sure. Um, because uh, like he, he liked his vibe earlier, but then Thompson talks about Timothy Leary. Um, became a sellout and was an FBI informant, which I don't, is that true? He, he mentioned that in several of the interviews I had, and he was very bitter about that. He was also very bitter about Gary Trudeau. Yeah. The, the, the Doonesbury cartoon. So the Duke in the Doonesbury cartoon is, is Hunter Thompson. And I never followed Doonesbury much, so I don't know what the portrayal was, but Thompson did not like that at all because he, he felt like he was literally a caricature. But to my point before, like you read his work schedule, that that's a caricature of his drug taking too, yeah, um, or his his persona there. So he sort of brings it on himself. And I found a quote from that film that I mentioned. Um, he says, "I was I was expected to be the Duke uh, more than Thompson. I began to use him as a vehicle for quotations that nobody else would say. That was really um, that was one that was really me talking. Uh, those were my quotes." I really, in the way as a person, the myth has taken over. So he, he's conflicted about this. And again, the example of him trying to cover Carter, it's it's more about Thompson than him. And it's yeah. this myth and this huge larger-than-life persona, which makes me think of like Kerouac and the same sort of thing happened sure. to him. Um, uh, apparently, according to CBS News, Leary was, in fact, an informant. There you um, go. Yeah, I don't, know, I don't know when it came out or when it was assured. Uh, Leary died in like 96, I think. Yeah. So what's the takeaway here? Um, would you, could you teach this? Um, I, I like teaching the wave speech. You've been there when I've done it before. I think it's an excellent catharsis um, to what is such a weird era to teach. Like, I know you and I have talked about the prevalence of, of boomer culture and all this stuff, but like, to, I think him coining the phrase fear and loathing in 63 when Kennedy is shot between 63 and the book comes out in 71 is a perfect encapsulation of this. Like we like the idea that you radicalize because Kennedy is shot and the civil rights era is ramping up. And so we want to fight for what's good and, um, you know, fight for this kind of very almost libertarian liberalism, like, you know, drugs are fine. Uh, you know, free love, all this stuff, um, to see it all come crashing down with the conservatism of, you know, Nixon into Reagan, is fascinating and to have him write this is fine and it's incredible writing some of it's the best writing you read as an american but like there's a lot of sex stuff in here that we haven't really gotten into right um that's really weird uh but for all of the bloviating we've been doing it's an incredibly funny book it is so funny um and yeah, I don't know. Uh, what do you think? I mean, you've seen me teach the wave speech for years now. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I would not teach it to high schoolers, certainly, just because, again, you're identifying with this guy who's using so many drugs yeah. and how destructive that is. And, you know, um, and 
I don't know if he's glorifying it in its own way, but on the surface he's glorifying it. I and mean, yeah. you take a step back and you realize this is all self-destructive. Um, and it's the drugs that are keeping the American dream going, as we talk about. You know, at the last scene, he's doing the poppers and he walks off. What's the last line? Um, too strange to live, too beautiful to die, or whatever. Yeah, some sort of like that. Um, let's see. They looked at me. Uh, I took another big hit off the ammo, and by the time I got to the bar, my heart was full of joy. I felt like a monster reincarnation of Horatio Alger, a man on the move, just sick enough to be totally confident. That's right. Just sick enough to be totally confident. Perfect. But I think the uh, the wrong kid might take the message that no, it's just do a lot of drugs and then write and you can do great things. And I think he means the opposite, even though he lived his life in a different way. But that that's that libertarianism you're talking about. Yeah. You know, that freedom, but that freedom to self destroy, um, which would be dangerous to a, to a high schooler, I think. Well, and and I think the other thing too, which is you you hit on, which is that. He's not depicted as a hero or an anti-hero. Like, it could, you could make this character an anti-hero. Like, mm-hmm. in some ways, he does the right thing, but he doesn't. He's more a tour guide. Right. He just takes us along with us, uh, as awkward and weird as it is. And, like, there's this incredible scene um, where everything has snapped, and uh, the attorney's back. He's out of his mind. Thompson is out of his mind, and they forget to put up the Do Not Disturb sign on the door right. and, and the, the, the yeah. poor maid comes in and tries to, you know, change out the linens and they convince her there's CIA operatives. There's like a knife being brandished. Uh, we'll pay you a hundred dollars a week. Just stay away. And you're just like this. And I mean, and they do this also when right before the wave speech, like he was doing LSD. He spills it on his sleeve. Uh, the dude starts licking it off his sleeve and just a regular guy who's drinking at the bar comes in and he goes, with any luck, we've ruined his life. Mm-hmm. That That's what's going on here. Um, he's not a hero. So, I, I mean, all that to say, I agree with you. It's such a fascinating reference to the American dream, though. I like the idea that someone who lived in it uh, understands what it means to regret it, uh, which is why I still think we can use the, the speech, but... For the most part, I think Hunter S. Thompson is something kids should discover on their own. Yeah, I think he's influential, and and the curious readers will discover him on on his own. Mm-hmm. And just as you're thinking, just the whole sort of road trip thing, and I meant to mention at some point, but there's echoes of Blues Brothers in here. There is, which I never really put together. Well, before. I mean, and it's like a dark version of Great Gatsby in some ways. It's just the partying all the time, the partying that doesn't mean anything. That mm-hmm. they're just trying to get through to the next day, like, and even the pacing of the wave speech feels very much like the end of Great Gatsby, looking at uh, at everything that's happened at the death of Gatsby. It's funny you mentioned that. Gatsby was Thompson's favorite book, and like he transcribed it by hand and then typed it out um, a couple, like every couple of years because he thought it was so tightly written. That was his model for writing. I believe it. Um, yeah, and so even though there's the wildness and the madness here, it's all very calculated. Um, I mean, he was a hardworking writer. You look at his letters going back from high school, and he knew at 15 he wanted to be a writer, and he's yeah. writing these letters to people and saving all these letters so he in his mind he's you know sort of uh, compiling his own archive so yeah. as wild and influential and certainly important as the style is um there's a lot of craft there it's not just you know let's drop some acid and write for 20 minutes kind of garbage well and i will say um as a teacher if there's anything you guys can recommend to us that is good new journalism or Gonzo Journalism, that would be a classroom appropriate. I'd love to see it because yeah. I like Tom Wolfe, but his books are 900 pages. So, like, th- that's also out. Diddy, and we can, we could probably put some Diddy in there. We, um, we should, just because, again, yeah. like, this is not only a literary movement, which 
something we always harp on. It's incredibly influential, and the way Thompson just does it speaks to a generation. Yeah. Um, and in the way that you talk about Bukowski, sometimes it's just fun to read stuff that you know you should like. Right, Because exactly. he's, he's a sloppy, fall-down drunk in a way that he is a drug addict here. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, America loves an outlaw, right? And they do. That, that's, what, that's what it is. That's a lot of its appeal there. Yeah. Uh, seeing the outrageous. Um, so we're just about out of time. Um, thanks for listening. Um, and I guess we're out. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Good picnic. <laughs>